So the Apostle Paul, we're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, was unexpectedly separated, forced out, torn away from those believers in Thessalonica. And he hadn't been there very long. He had only been there, we could count weeks. Uh, and then we'll see in a moment why he had to leave. But uh, he tells us in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, uh, verse 17, uh, that he was out of sight, but not out of mind. And I'm sure you can think of uh, folks who uh, you don't get to see very often at all. Uh, they're not with us face to face as often as we would like. Uh, but that doesn't mean we don't think about them, right? And that we don't miss them. I have fam- uh, family in the Seattle area. I have family uh, back in Indiana. Uh, that I see maybe once every two years, every 18 months or something like that. But uh, praying for them constantly, thinking about them, uh, texting, but we don't see those uh, loved ones. So that's Paul's situation here. Uh, It's interesting, if you look at your outline, uh, the opening uh, quote that I put on there for you. uh, says, conflict between people persists in spite of all human effort. Uh, to mitigate it, uh, some reports estimate that 90 percent of the people who fail in their life's vocation uh, do so because they cannot get along properly with other people. Uh, so we go all the way back to kindergarten does not play well with others. Um, people may be well trained and highly skilled in a technical or professional field, uh, but they are a liability in the workplace. If they are self-centered, likewise, even the most academically well-prepared pastor uh, or any person in ministry can be a liability in the church if he doesn't seek to sacrificially love and serve his people. Uh, Victor, and the, are there some other outlines out there? Uh, I actually need one. Oops, uh, I forgot to grab one. It's been a while since I wrote that, so. It is interesting that the Apostle Paul, even though he's the one. Oh, here comes Katie. Thank you. You didn't take that from your mom, did you? Okay, because it's Mother's Day. If you need an outline, you can raise your hands. I think the guys have. uh, I say this every week, but it's true. If you don't have the outline, you're going to be a little lost. Uh, So if you need one, raise your hand there. So the Apostle Paul, even though he's the standard for people in ministry, he was being... uh, accused uh, of a lot of different uh, things by false teachers, those that were trying to influence the Thessalonians. Uh, And so he's going to uh, answer the accusations of his critics in this passage this morning. But he's also going to show us some, I think, some amazing things. I uh, have come to love this passage, even just these three verses, because there's a lot packed in here uh, that we need to hear today. Uh, And it's interesting that the Apostle John later in his letters uh, echoes some of the same thoughts that Paul's going to echo here. Uh, Thoughts about what ministry in the church really is about. What relationships among Christians are really all about. Uh, What should be our attitude toward church? Uh, The church, I'll say in America so that I don't throw us in Norwalk under the bus. The church, uh, many Christians, many people that are truly born again believers 
have a horrendously cavalier attitude about church today. And I'm not quite sure yet why that is. I think part of it is because we live in a very luxurious culture. Uh, We live with a lot of ease and a lot of comfort. Uh, We have a lot of competition for our attention, uh, even on Sundays. Uh, Christians in America will skip church at the drop of a hat. It doesn't take much to make that. OK, I better pull it back a little. OK, some of you guys are like, whoa, well, this doesn't sound very Mother's Day. OK, I'm not talking to the mothers. I'm just talking to the guys. OK, uh, but it's true. It kind of gets me worked up a little bit. Uh, I don't get it. I don't understand it, because if we had the attitude of These New Testament ministers toward church, if we had the attitude of these first Christians that we see in the New Testament about church, if we had the attitude of the Lord Jesus Christ, who's called the head of the church, if we had the same attitude about church. We would never miss. They would be wheeling us in here on our sick bed and on our stretchers because we wouldn't want to miss being together if. We were challenged by the culture with persecution. Would we endeavor and strive to meet and to gather together? You know, the person, we're not sure who it was that wrote the letter called Hebrews in the New Testament. Uh, Those people were starting to face a little bit of pressure from the culture. And so they started to abandon church. And he tells them firmly, do not forsake the gathering together of yourselves. Have you ever spoken to a believer who lived or lives in a country where it's either illegal or they're persecuted or harassed for gathering together? I have. I have. You know, we had for a time Chinese students from Biola that would uh, live with us and uh, our kids left for school. So we rented out the rooms. Hey, we're not wasting any time. But these girls would tell us what it was like to be a Christian in China. And it's interesting. I just read an article this week about how the Christian church in China is exploding. The more the government tries to squash it, the bigger it grows. So quit persecuting them and it'll die. Right. Ooh, that was cold. But that's the that's the truth. Right. Just leave the Christians alone. Don't persecute them. Just make life easy for them. Then the church will die. That's what that's what's happening here in America. So these girls, these Chinese girls have told us what it was like. Well, church was in a house because if you're part of the state sanctioned church, the church has to get written permission from the government to exist. And they have cameras in the church, every church, because they record what's being taught, what's being preached to make sure that it's not against communism or it's not against the leaders or whatnot. So if they want to have a true church, they meet in homes. And they were telling us about singing, that when they sing, they would sing like this. They would sing their songs and they would have to sing in a whisper. Because if anyone walking along the street heard them singing, they would call the police. But it's not like that here. The role of the pastor today, the role of people in ministry uh, is changing so much in America. It's really almost... Disappeared. The biblical model of what it means to be a pastor elder is almost disappeared in our country. I have uh, I shortened that up there, but I read this a long time ago and I taped this up right in front of my face in my office. I stare at this 
about eight to ten hours a day every day. Uh, and I read, <laughs> I read. Well, it's not like this, you know. It's behind my laptop. So uh, as I'm playing solitaire and hearts and you know shopping on Wayfair and you know researching restaurants and stuff. So okay, I'm being sarcastic. All right. You know, someone gave me a shirt. It uh, says, "I speak fluent sarcasm," and as soon as I can fit into it, I'll wear it. I promise. So. But it says this, someone said this and I wrote it down. It says the role of the pastor today is at a crossroads. As the church grows increasingly worldly, so also does the pastor's job description. CEO, entertainer, fundraiser, master of ceremony, psychologist, on and on and on. But none of these are in harmony with the biblical model of spiritual leadership. The primary function of a pastor elder can be summed up in one word. What's the word? Edification. And because we don't really know what that word means, I had to look it up, too. I mean, I know what it means, but I'll tell you in a moment. Well, I'll tell you right now. Summed up in one word, edification. And listen closely, because before you start... Getting frustrated with your leaders or upset with your leaders or impatient with your leaders or grumbling and gossiping and complaining about your leaders. Remember this. The pastor's main concern is the spiritual maturity of the believers under his care. That is what Christ has charged me with. That is what the Lord has charged our elders with. Our primary concern, our supreme interest is your spiritual maturity. I remember, I'm, you can tell I'm processing. Should I say it? Should I not? Now when I say that, you're always say it, say it, say it, say it. I remember someone saying, Pastor, can't we just hang out and have fun? Why do you always have to talk about Jesus? Somebody said that to me. Uh, I'm like, okay. Uh, I was gracious. Unlike myself, I was gracious. Uh, But that's what we're called to do. Your spiritual maturity is our chief concern. So Paul is ripped away from these new believers and Timothy and Silas. Remember, they were working as part of a team. We We tend to forget that. But this passage I really have come to love because it is the heartbeat of ministry and also it is the center or the focal point we can go to to learn about God-pleasing, Christ-exalting, sanctifying relationships among Christians. Because there's so many false ideas floating around there, philosophies that come from the world about what does it mean to be in relationship with one another? What does it mean to have a relationship, to relate to one another as Christians? But that's addressed here uh, in this passage. I'm excited uh, to be looking at it this morning. So why did Paul leave Thessalonica? He was being accused of being greedy. We find this in different places in Scripture. False teachers were accusing him of being greedy, of being deceitful, uh, of being on a power trip. Uh, They even said, look, you Thessalonians, he just took off and left you in a lurch. He doesn't care about you. He doesn't love you. He just up and took off without even saying goodbye or anything. 
But that's not the case. Uh, Paul is the exemplary of sacrificial love. So there had to be a reason. Uh, Acts chapter 17 tells us uh, why he left. Why did he leave? Well, we don't have to turn there, but just to give you the synopsis, because people who were opposed to the gospel pulled together an angry mob and they were on the way to attack them and they're thrown in jail. Not only that is they also get a hold of some of the other believers, particularly a man named Jason, threatening his life. And they told Jason and some other believers, either you talk Paul and Timothy and Silas into getting out of here or we're really going to bring some harm and some damage. So Paul had to flee for his life from Thessalonica, along with Timothy and Silas. That's why he left. So what he's writing here in First Thessalonians 2, verses 17 through 20, is his defense against these accusations that he did not love them. And that he just took off and left them in the lurch. And it gives us uh, a model of How we who are in ministry, ministering to people, and by the way, ministry is people. Ministry is not programs. Uh, Ministry is not uh, events. Uh, Ministry, uh, I mean, for instance, ministry is not a Boyle Heights ministry. Ministry is about the people who live in the city of Boyle Heights who we impact and we minister to. Ministry is about people. Ministry here on this corner is about people, the people who officially gather here as a church family. And then if we do evangelism, people who live in the community, it's about people. It's always an interesting question. What if this property were taken away from us by the authorities? Would we cease to be a church? No, we'd find someone in our church family that has a swimming pool and we just meet at their house. Linda, thanks. I'm so glad you're here, Linda. You're the only one that laughs. The language here shows us that this is no ordinary love. Sometimes we can gloss over the words of Scripture. These words are very, in the original language, they're very emotional, they're very intense, they're very agonizing. And it's a sound repudiation of the accusations against him. So he's going to mention three elements. And on the back of your outline, you have three blanks. In a moment, we'll mention three elements. I'll just give you number one. I can't remember. Was that? Yeah, there it is. That's number one. Paul's love for them. Three elements of Paul's caring relationship ministry. Number one, Paul's love for them. When it says there, if you look at verse 17, but we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short while in person, but not in spirit, were all the more eager with great desire to see your face. Now, there's some uh, we don't even have time to do this justice, but just let it be said that you may not be able to find a more powerful collection of emotional words in all of the Bible. When you look at these words, that word taken away from is actually only one word in the original language. And it's a word that we really don't use very much. The word bereft. Uh, You're bereft of someone. 
Uh, it means to be harshly taken away, to be taken away by force. It actually can also be used in our New Testament uh, as the word orphan. And it can mean, it can refer to literal orphans, children, like we see in the letter of James. Or in a broader context, it can refer to being taken away from companions, like Jesus told his disciples in the Gospel of John. I will not leave you as orphans. He wasn't literally their father. But he was their companion. He was their uh, master. They were the disciples. And uh, they were afraid that he was going to be just torn away from him. The word literally means to be torn away from. It carries the harsh sense of that parent-child relationship when either parents are suddenly snatched away from children or children are suddenly through death or distance or some reason uh, taken away from parents. And there's just agony, there's anxiety, there's sorrow, there's distress. You're just inconsolable with grief. That's what Paul's saying. He'd only been there a number of weeks and he was forced to leave and he was beside himself about how they were doing. So they had to go and flee down to Athens, of course, you know, which is in Greek and is in Greece. Uh, and so is Thessaloniki. Uh, but there's a great distance between the two cities. In chapter two, as well, in verse 11, he talks to them. Uh, he says, as if I uh, I'm like a nursing mother to you. And then in verse 11 and uh, verse seven and then in verse 11, he talks to them like he's their father. But now we see the language shift from mother and father to orphan. Usually uh, it would be used to talk about disciples without a, a master. But Paul flips it and reverses it. And he says, we are actually discipleless apostles because you have been forced away from us. His premature separation from them elicited strong parental emotions. That should be every minister's goal. If you're in any type of ministry, whether you're working with children or working with older people or working in music ministry or discipling and teaching. We should be so serious about that work of the Lord. We should be uh, love these love the people we minister to so sacrificially that it would pain us as if to be separated as if our own child were being taken away from us. Well, why? Because that is the way the Lord Jesus loved these believers. That's the way the Lord Jesus loves us. And I think sometimes when we're involved in ministry, we forget that we're just stewards. We're, we're just caretakers of people who belong to the head of the church, Jesus Christ. It's not my ministry. It's the Lord's ministry. It's not my people. I'm not Moses. Uh, you know, you're the Lord's people. And it is a frightening thing. I would tell you it is a frightening thing to know that I am accountable for every single one of you spiritually. <laughs> I'll trade places with you sometime. I'll say, Lord, OK, for one week, uh, I'm going to let that be responsible. So when I get to heaven, Lord, remember the week of May 15th to 22nd, that's on vet's record, not mine. You can do it. You can do it. But Jennifer would have to move next to you, though, to help. So, yeah. 
The point I'm trying to make here is as we look at this passage. We have to remember that ministering to people, the care of souls. There is no more important work than the care of souls. There's nothing more important because it has eternal consequences. So when your shepherd, whether it's me or vet or Ron or Joey or Dave or Tim or Robin works with the kids and Josie and I'm leaving people out. I know Reuben and Lillian. When they're all up in your grill, uh, I'm old. I don't even know if we say that anymore. Uh, when they got when they take out their crowbars to pry into your business. They're caring for your souls because they realize the magnitude of the responsibility. We do it, I'll tell you, first of all, because we love the Lord Jesus. Second of all, because we love you and we understand the magnitude of the responsibility. Paul was so torn up inside. Look at chapter 3, verse 1 that we read earlier. Therefore, when we could endure it no longer, and it hadn't been that long, because verse 17 says, for a short while. It was hardly any time at all, and they couldn't take it anymore. And they said, well, we can't stand it anymore. We're worried about you, uh, your spiritual health. You're new in the Lord. We want to make sure that you get on your a good foundation spiritually. We thought it would be best if I, Paul, and Silas stay here in Athens and we're going to send Timothy back to Thessalonica to check on you. And it is interesting. Is your spiritual life this great of a priority as we see here? Look at the priority here. The, the priority here with the Thessalonians themselves, they were concerned about their spiritual welfare. And, and Paul and Silas and Timothy are consumed with anxiety and worry and concern about how these people are doing spiritually. Do you have that kind of concern for yourself spiritually? I know the Lord is far more concerned for me spiritually than I am for myself. Uh, and if you're more concerned for me spiritually than I am myself, you haven't told me, uh, but feel free uh, if you need to you know, confront me or anything. Seriously, though, uh, we do need that, don't we, among each other? But look at verses six and seven. Good news. A spiritual muscle relaxer or spiritual anti-anxiety meds in verse six. But now that Timothy has come back to us from Thessalonica, from you, he's brought us good news of your faith and love and that you always think kindly of us and that you long to see us just as much as we long to see you. And for this reason, brethren, in all of our distress and affliction, ministry, uh, there's a couple descriptive words for ministry, distress and affliction. Uh, we should put up posters. We want you for ministry. We promise you distress and affliction. Uh, that'll just bring them in. I think sometimes I remember Sebastian sharing when he got back from Urban Hope. Uh, I asked him, What's, what did you learn? He said the number one thing that he learned was that ministry is hard and messy and it can even be ugly. And, and that's the truth. And we say praise the Lord, right? It's like it's real You're, because ministry is about people. It's about life. Sometimes we get this rosy picture and these romantic notions about ministry and being a Christian and our walk with the Lord and church life. 
in all our distress and affliction, we were comforted about you through your faith. I think I'm going to mention this later, but in case I forget, they were comforted when they found out that these folks were doing well spiritually. Do you realize that you can bring comfort to others by you yourself growing spiritually? If you are growing in your knowledge of the Lord, if you're growing in your obedience to Scripture, that comforts me. That helps me to sleep at night. I'm not being funny. I'm being serious. It comforts me. It helps me to sleep at night. It's, it, and, I, and I know it's a comfort to my wife when I am doing well spiritually. It, and, and when you live with folks, it doesn't take much to know when someone's off a little bit spiritually, right? You can tell. But it can be a great comfort to others when you're walking closely with the Lord and vice versa. Right. It can be distressing. It can bring affliction, trouble and suffering when we as believers aren't walking with the Lord. We can bring tremendous sorrow into people's lives when we're not being faithful to the Lord. But they were comforted because they brought back, Timothy brought back really good news. Notice uh, back in verse 2. They say, we, Paul says, we sent Timothy, our brother, God's fellow worker, chapter 3, verse 2. Worker in the gospel of Christ to do what? To strengthen and encourage you as to your faith. Notice their central concern. It's not on their health. It's not on their wealth. It's not on their. This is what uh, an author wrote. So don't uh, shoot the messenger. Not on their self-esteem. It's not on their ease of life. But their concern was the spiritual quality of their life. Their faith was of supreme importance to Paul. And he mentions it five times in these ten verses of chapter three. That's how important it is. And that's one of the rules of sound hermeneutics. Hermeneutics, uh, that's not someone's name. Hey, do you know hermeneutics? No, I don't know Herman. No, hermeneutics is the science of studying the Bible. And one of the common rules is if something is repeated, you better pay attention. And he repeats this theme five times in only ten verses. There is no greater concern. There is no more supreme Thing occupying his mind and his heart, then their spiritual welfare. Oh, we got a new house. Praise the Lord. That's great. Oh, I, I got over that horrible flu I had. Praise the Lord. That's great. I mean, those are all great things. I'm not belittling or minimizing those things. But of even far greater importance is how are you doing with your in your walk with the Lord? How, how are you doing in your obedience to our Lord's commands? What, what are you wrestling with right now? What are you struggling with? How can I encourage you? Let me pray with you. How can I help you spiritually? Let's read some scripture together. Well, let me share something with you from God's word that I think might encourage you. It says your faith is what he was concerned about. What does he mean by that? It points to two things. Number one, of course, a strong foundation of doctrine. Uh, We see that in Jude 3. But not just that, but how we demonstrate our true belief as we live out our obedience in 
all the circumstances of life. When there's a crisis or a tragedy or a struggle or a heartache or a hurt or things like that. The faith he mentions here is about how do I respond to those things in a way that conforms to God's word. And and my response is pleasing to him and my response exalts Christ. And we're like, ugh, that that doesn't sound like something I want to get involved in. But that's what he's saying. He was concerned about their doctrinal understanding, but also about how they were living that in everyday life. Paul's longing to be with them was not uh, born from the sentiment of friendship. This is what someone else said. His longing to be with them was not born from the sentiment of friendship or mere socialization. But his longing to be with them was born from his sense of responsibility for their spiritual welfare. Do you see what this author is saying? Sometimes we gather together in church and all that's holding us together are just the sentimental bonds of friendship. Or perhaps church is just a place that we go because it's a social event. It's where we go. It's just what we do. But Paul is saying church is so much more than that. It's so much deeper than that. Church is about people. It's about relationships. It's about walking together in sanctification, pursuing holiness, helping each other in our spiritual lives. It's not just a place to gather together socially or to build sentimental friendships. The focus of God pleasing, Christ exalting, edifying, I, could, I had to stop, I could go on with a lot of words there. Edifying relationships is caring about the spiritual welfare of brothers and sisters in Christ, doing sanctification together. That is a biblical or biblically defined relationship. We pursue Christ likeness together. It's as basic as how were you like Jesus today? Tell me about something that you faced today. Tell me how you were tempted today, how you were challenged today. And then tell me how God used his word to show you the right way to go. And tell me how you did. Did you do well or did you totally bomb And and that's okay. A lot of times we don't want to talk about the failures. We just we want to talk about all the victories. I don't know about you and you may be mortified to hear this, but a lot of times I have more failures than victories. And I'm the pastor. I thought for sure Lisa would say amen. But we have to talk about and share all those things, not always in a public forum, but within the context of Relationships, helping each other do sanctification together. And if our attitude toward the church is cavalier, we may not even be here enough to do that. We may not, and it doesn't have to happen here on the property. We, we may have such a cavalier attitude about church that we really don't have biblically defined relationships with one another outside of these walls off of this property. Your very closest friends and confidants must be other born-again believers. 
And I think if you look at the model in the context of the New Testament, they're the friendships and the relationships within your local church. We live life. We do sanctification together outside of these walls off of this property. She's going to get embarrassed, but because I'm a married man, we couldn't go alone. But Nancy and Patty took me to Costco because we don't have a Costco card anymore. That was a blast. Loved it, right? We talked about some spiritual things, but we also had a lot of fun running around the store together. Remember, I've met Vet for coffee before. I've met Tim for coffee before. And uh, Oh, we went camping with Jennifer and Vet. That was an experience. Yeah. Uh, I'm not really a camper, but uh, and you learned that pretty fast. But just doing things together. Many of you have vacation together, uh, go out to eat together. Uh, you do things together. It's good to check up on each other to just you, whatever happened to the drop in. Whatever happened to the drop in? I mean, there was a day when you could just show up someone's house unannounced, you know, uh, and they don't say, oh, what's wrong? What are you doing here? Uh, and you go in and you'd visit, right? Or you had food, you made extra food, so you go and you share. Uh, if you show up my door with food, I'm not going to turn you away. Oh, that happened yesterday. They showed up with the plate of enchiladas, some of the best I ever had in my whole life. Not going to say no to that. But it's outside the context, right? But those are opportunities to, to check on each other, encourage each other in our spiritual welfare. We have to learn to move beyond the sentimental friendship and the socialization and get down to the spiritual welfare. And to do that, we have to understand universal church. We need to understand why the local church exists. We need to understand sanctification. We need to understand the biblical teachings about pride and humility. And we're not going to go over it, but I put some things on the front side of your outline and a little bit on the back about pride and humility, which you can look at sometime. Pride is always the enemy of ministry and biblical relationships. And humility is always the friend. So you can look at that. But I would strongly encourage you. I referenced this on your outline. It's just a little 32-page booklet. Uh, but this is required reading. This is required reading for any Christian. You've got to read it. And invariably, the last person that's... And I have some if you want to buy one from me. I keep a lot of these in stock. The last person in this church that I gave one to, the person took it. The next day, I get a text. Oh, pastor, I'm in trouble. I said, why? Because I'm reading that book about pride, and now I'm just in big trouble. And I texted back, amen, exclamation, 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 exclamation. It's very convicting. Just beware. We're not going to dwell on this, but beware because we're running out of time. There are a lot of worldly ideas and philosophies floating around out there about what relationships are all about. But these ideas don't have their origin in Scripture. The focus of relationships among Christians, as defined in the Scriptures, revolves around caring for one another's spiritual welfare and physical needs sometimes. But it's hard, isn't it, sometimes to get past that veneer? Uh, you can't really force it, uh, but it can it can be done. It has to be done. We already looked at that. In 2.17, he said he wanted to see them face to face. 
that's loaded with a lot of intensity and emotion. It carries the idea of being compelling, a dominant, controlling desire. Uh, It's really talking about coming into intimate, personal communication with them. It's the same words being used that were used back in Exodus when Moses asked God, let me see your face. But God said, you can't to see my face uh, is hyperbole. That means I'm going to reveal my genuine essence, my true nature to you if you see my face. And if you see my face as God, you're not going to live. But that's what he's saying. He's open with them. He's totally open with them, open about life, open about uh, everything that he's struggling with, everything that he's dealing with. He says, I want to be with you. I want to live life with you so that we can do sanctification together. There's a lot we could say. Now I'm thinking maybe we should cut this in half. But, you know, for a lot of different reasons, uh, some of us pull back from being in close relationships. And you'll see some scripture reference on there. Uh, That's a sign of pride uh, when we pull back from having close relationships because it's a biblical command. Uh, And sometimes we also put boundaries. We pick up these boundaries from things that we read or that we hear and we and we put uh, demands. Sometimes they're unspoken demands on people. Uh, well, if I'm going to be in a relationship with this person, then I have to have this and I have to feel this way and I have to be this and I have. Th- th- those don't come from Scripture. You know, relationships in Scripture are all about me taking the initiative, taking the risk, me moving toward people with no conditions. So. When he says he wanted to be with them face to face, what he's saying is he wanted to be his true self. He wasn't hiding. He wasn't pulling back. He wasn't putting on any kind of mask or making any demands or or qualifications. And sometimes it's hard, right, to get close to people. It's one thing to hang out here. But, you know, if we hang out for too long, you're going to maybe see or hear some things that, you know, You know, because we all put on our best Christian robot, you know, outfit when we come to church. I am a Christian. You know, my life is good. I have no problems. You know, everything's perfect. Look at me. But right. But when but when we spend time together, things might slip out. Right. You might see a part of me that I like to keep hidden or those parts that. Ooh, this sounds kind of bad. I was going to say the parts that only Lisa gets to see, but that's that's that ain't come out right. Uh, let only close loved one and family members see. Now, some of you know me well enough. You've been with me uh, when I've had moments. Uh, and I feel sorry <laughs> if those were just little moments. I'm sorry. I'm trying not to look at certain people over here because uh, they've experienced the face to face a few times. But, you know, when you're on the receiving end of that, that's a good opportunity. How do we respond to help each other spiritually? It's just about being real, I guess. He says he was all the more eager to see them. He's saying it was more than just merely trying. He was implying speed, eagerness, seriousness without delay, not being listless to get back to them. And our question is, is this our attitude about fellowship and relationships with other believers? Are we eager 
to be with other believers? Do we make haste? Do we take that time seriously? Do we make it a priority to be with one another in order to help one another spiritually? Here's the second thing. We're going to fly through second and third. Love was really the main thrust of his defense against the false teachers. Secondly, Paul understood his enemy. Verse 18. We wanted to come to you. He switches from we to I, which is emphatic. Even I personally, I want you to know the apostle. More than one time I wanted to come to you. And yet this is so eerily fascinating. Who hindered him from coming to them? Satan hindered me from coming to you. Paul was saying it took a supernatural effort of the devil to keep me from coming back to you. I tried, but I kept being thwarted in my plans to get to you. So we know that Satan opposes the work of God at every turn. We don't have time, but the scriptures list probably 10 different churches that tells that Satan was present there, present at that church, trying to work against them in Smyrna uh, and in Thessalonica and all these other places. And then he roars around like a or he roams around like a roaring lion seeking people he can devour. But it's interesting that Satan is not omnipresent, is he? He he can't be everywhere at all times like God can. And he says hindered. That's a military term. It's, it's trying to draw a picture in our minds of an army who's advancing. The ministry is advancing and the enemy does things like digging a trench in the road or or tearing up the road, which is what they would often do in ancient times. So that the advancing army couldn't get through. So Satan is trying to hinder Paul and Silas and Timothy from Doing the ministry. And against believers, Satan can do nothing outside of God's overruling providence. Now, read that on the screen just to yourself as I read it. This is very important. Paul's plans were thwarted only because it accorded with God's plans regarding his work. In other words, even Satan and his opposition is under the divine sovereign hand of God. That's really mysterious. It's like, why would God allow Satan? Well, for a time, God has allowed Satan to be the prince of this age, the prince of the power of the air. For a short time, Satan has great influence. But never forget this. Always under God's sovereignty. So I say be of good cheer, because when evil appears, do not despair, because God is sovereignly allowing it within his will. To accomplish his plan. And we don't have to always know every single detail of what God is doing. Many times it must be enough that we know that God is sovereign and he is in control. Last, lastly, the third element of Paul's caring relationship is his anticipation of Christ's return. Verse 19. For who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? And this is quite surprising. Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. 
So the Apostle Paul always lived. He always taught others that they that we must live in the light of Jesus Christ's return. I think you should read that out loud with me where it says live in the light of Jesus Christ's return. Read that with me. Live in the light of Jesus Christ's return. He's saying every day that we live in the back of our mind should be the thought that one day we will be with the Lord. That should have a motivating influence on the way that I live my life. That one day I won't be here anymore. One day I will be in his presence. And perhaps one day I will be going about my business down here and he will appear and call us all home together is what Paul's saying. That word coming at the end of verse 19 is the Greek word for rapture. So he's talking about when the Lord appears in the air to take his church home to heaven. Paul's saying that the future glory that's coming for believers at Christ's return is a powerful motivation for our ministry. For our ministry. In other words, the ministry that we pour into others, that we pour into each other, will have some seeable results when we come into the Lord's presence. Now, this is some cool stuff. That's not very theological, but this is some cool stuff. It's a very surprising statement because he says, who, bless you, who is our hope or joy or crown? You think he would say Jesus is our joy and hope and crown. But what does he say in verse 19? He says, you are our hope and joy and crown. That's very surprising. Why is he saying that? He's pointing out that a crucial element of his joy when he is in the presence of Christ is that he would see all the believers that he had loved and ministered to. His joy when he is with Jesus will be magnified by the results that God worked in the lives of people he was ministering to. Wow. If that doesn't charge me up to get involved in the spiritual welfare of people's lives, the fact that I'm going to be overjoyed with indescribable joy as it is because I'm in the Lord's presence, but then that's going to be magnified by times and times and times, depending on how many people I had a spiritual impact upon. Mm. Or I guess as they say, mm, mm, mm. That's really something special. It's not just church. It's not just ministry. It's pursuing Christ together, caring for one another's spiritual welfare, because it has eternal consequences. He mentions the rapture four times in First Thessalonians. It's very important. At that time when the Lord returns and inaugurates the end of time, the seven year tribulation period, it's going to be a time of indescribable joy because we won't be here. We'll be with the Lord. And our joy will also be because we're with one another. And I would say, if there's someone in here that you don't particularly care for, you're not getting along with, you better get over it because you're going to be with them for eternity. 
And if I know God, he may even put you together as roommates for all eternity. And if I'm with one of you guys, I'm on the top bunk. Remember, we won't have a sin nature. We'll be in our glorified condition. But folks, once again, we see this again and again and again in Scripture. The decisions I make in this life. The things I value in this life. The choices I make in this life. The priorities I make in this life. The the behavior that I live in this life has impact for eternity. Even for those that are believers and have been forgiven of all of our sins. Our joy can be magnified. Last slide. I was thinking, how do I love thee? Paul says, let me count the ways. He loved them in that he had a great desire and made tremendous efforts to see them. Do you make tremendous effort to spend time with other believers? Or do you prefer to pull back, to cut and run, to not be bothered? He showed them that he loved them because he told them it took a supernatural opposition to stop him. Nothing short of Satan's interference kept him from going back to Thessalonica. He showed them that he loved them because he told them that they are central to his eternal joy. He knew that his life that he was pouring into them was going to bring him even more joy when he got to heaven. He showed them that he loved them. He says in verse 20, for you are our glory. What does he mean by that? That's talking about honor. Honor that God bestowed on him because of what he had done for others on behalf of God. In other words, God will honor those who are ministering on his behalf for the spiritual welfare of others. Do you see why I love this passage so much? Wouldn't stand up with together, but listen closely. I know it's hot in here. I don't know why it's so hot in here today. It's like a steam bath in here. I think I've lost five pounds since we started. No comments from the peanut gallery, please. But listen. Listen closely. As you have been already, I know. Galatians chapter six, verse one says this. Brethren. If any one of you believers in your church is caught like an animal in a snare because of trespasses and sin, you who are spiritual currently walking with the Lord and living in the power of the spirit, seek to heal, to restore like you would a broken bone or a dislocated limb. Restore this person that's caught and ensnared in his sin and do it with the spirit of gentleness And be careful to look after your own self so that you will not be tempted into any kind of sin whatsoever as you're seeking to help someone else. That sounds like caring for the spiritual welfare of each other, doesn't it? Do you know someone that's struggling in in our body and, and you felt like the Lord's asked you to offer to help, but you've kind of pulled back? Or what about Romans chapter 12, verse 15? We rejoice with those who rejoice and we weep with those who weep. That's about 
right, pursuing sanctification together, helping each other spiritually. And it is interesting. The focus of this passage of ministry of biblical relationships is caring for one another's spiritual welfare. But sometimes I may not care about other spiritual welfare. And many times as a Christian, I may not even have my own spiritual welfare as a priority. So when someone approaches me to try to help me spiritually, I get indignant and upset. Because they're more concerned about my spiritual welfare than I am even myself. So in comes what the Bible says about pride and humility and how that works. Heavenly Father, I pray today your word would have an impact, not my words. I pray as we look into the scriptures, we know that they were delivered by the Holy Spirit. That these things that Paul wrote to these believers are things that affect us today. Father, many people have a very wrong attitude about the church today. We could go on and on about those attitudes, but the church exists to care for the spiritual welfare of its members or of the people who gather. So, Father, convict our hearts two things. To make the spiritual welfare of others a priority. And perhaps, secondly, it will convict me that there are things I need to do in my own life spiritually if I'm going to be used effectively to help others. And Father, I pray that this week we would go back to these verses and remind ourselves that even in heaven, what we have done for you on earth will last. And our joy when we get to heaven can be magnified Because we have looked out for the spiritual welfare of others. So, Father, what that means, just help us to get beyond the sentimental friendships. Help us to, in a natural way, not forced, to check up on each other. Help us to be receptive to listening to what we're struggling with, what we're being tempted by. Help us to be open and honest with one another, not to hide our sins and to uh, not to run away from relationships. We need you among us, Father. We need you desperately. Father, I want to say thank you. Thank you for this group of people, uh, for these saints that you have pulled together from eternity past. You chose each person here to be here. So, Father, help each of us to understand that to be part of a church means to be part of one another's lives. Not just gathering together on Sunday mornings for an hour and a half. But walking side by side, arm in arm, in the pursuit of sanctification and Christ-likeness. Encouraging, strengthening, rebuking, reproving, praying, helping That's what a true church is all about. That's what we want to be. So by your grace, that's what we pray. Thank you, Father, for every good thing you've given us today. Thank you for our mothers. And thank you for our Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thanks for being here today. Happy Mother's Day again. And remember, guys, you're doing the dishes. Or you're going out to eat.